Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Must Hear Music podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. I am sitting here, this is the first for the Must Hear Music podcast, so a couple firsts. I am sitting here alone, so I'm very lonely at the moment. Um, And the other first is that we are devoting this um, podcast to one whole artist, which, and I do have a terrible memory, so there's a good chance I'm forgetting another example, Um, but I don't believe we've done this before. so yeah, as as you might have guessed, the artist that we're going to dedicate this one entire podcast to is David Bowie, who passed away this last Sunday, January 10th, after secretly battling cancer, liver cancer, it seems, for 18 months. Um, Bowie had just released an album on his 69th birthday called Black Star. It was his 25th studio record. It's... I'm a big Bowie fan, so it came out. I was very excited about it. I was excited that it was his best album, at least in my reckoning, since uh, 2002's Heathen. And then two days later, he's dead. This person who just released this incredibly vital um, jazz-influenced experimental rock record. Uh, You know, the guy releases his most interesting record in over a decade. You get excited about, you know, what is he going to do next? And then it turns out that he's gone so it's the world that you know like the world has been in mourning you know musicians have been pouring tributes out uh whether musically or in words or via tattoo form um facebook profiles and timelines are just full of bowie stuff and but so yeah so people have been talking about bowie i think i think one thing that is still kind of missing at least as far as a lot of people i know who know about Bowie and are curious but maybe only know a couple albums is kind of a comprehensive run-through of the music. So usually on Must Hear Music, we do new stuff, talk about the interesting new songs that are out. In this case, we're going to talk just about Bowie. And part of the reason is Bowie is one of my all-time favorite artists. There's something... He's just peerless. And by by the time this goes up, um, I wrote a piece kind of explaining why I think more than any other rock star, he has influenced a variety of genres. Um, Because at least when it comes to rock music, there's no one else who touched on, who successfully created music in in a variety of genres and who created music that influenced other artists in those genres. Um, Simply beyond rock, Bowie worked in funk, R&B, electronic music, dance, pop, um, 
it's crazy what he did and what, in, you know, recently jazz, what he did and what he successfully accomplished. So yeah, so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to be talking about uh, Bowie's music, kind of his heyday years. And, you know, this this isn't too much of a departure, I think, for the must-hear music because ultimately, like, Bowie's first 10, maybe 13 years are absolutely essential. I think even... I, I accept that I probably like Bowie for what he did and represented um, more than a lot of other people might. I, I can see why other people, he maybe isn't in their top five favorite artists, but I think regardless of your feelings um, uh, towards Bowie in general, like there's no way of getting around that this is, you know, one of the top two most interesting figures rock music has ever seen. So yeah, so let's get into it. So David Bowie, born David Jones, um, pretty much knew he wanted to be a musician right away. Uh, he changed his name to Bowie because Davy Jones was one of the monkeys. He didn't want to get confused with that. He released a self-titled album in 67. The really fascinating thing about Bowie, early Bowie, kind of like early Dylan, is that for someone who would go on to be such a genius and such an iconoclast, both Dylan and Bowie's first albums are f- not really that original Dylan was pretty much just ripping off Woody Guthrie on his first album and Bowie is very trend chasing which is funny for someone who would be such trendsetter eventually his first album he's clearly just trying to make music that sounds like other successful British pop acts out there like even the cover um you should check it out Bowie 1967 album he's got this goofy mod haircut that looks not even like cool British mod, but just like lame, like as if someone who found out about mod two days ago and was like, oh, I guess I'll get that haircut. Um, And you know, the first album's fine. I think it's one of those for purist only sort of things. Like if you're curious, worth checking out. It's not a must listen. Uh, Prior to that album, he had a single that I do think is kind of interesting called I Dig Everything. The song itself is fairly innocuous. But I think it's worth checking out just because I think the phrase is such a compelling one. I dig everything. Um, I, I just love it. Like it seems to like even before he became the David Bowie that we know and love, like he already had this kind of idea that he was this both culture, like a cultural and musical omnivore. Like he digs everything. He loves all different types of music. He loves uh, all different kinds of pleasure. Like the man sampled like everything under the sun you can imagine in the 70s. Anyways, so that's early Bowie. Second album, these days best known as Space Oddity. Technically, it was another self-titled album. So he basically realized the first one was a dud and came out with a second self-titled release in 1969, two years after his um, first debut. So Space Oddity is one of Bowie's best remembered songs and one of his best loved songs. The funny thing is when it came out, it didn't do that well. It took a few years after kind of the Ziggy thing made a big impact for Space Oddity to become a hit. Nevertheless, um, you know, Space Oddity was a, a pretty forward-thinking song, I would say. It's it's different than anything else that was being released at the time. That being said, it is a, a fairly of-its-time piece. You know, it, it sounds psychedelic folk rock. Unlike a lot of other Bowie stuff, I wouldn't exactly call it timeless. It definitely sounds like it came out of the late 60s. You know, nevertheless, incredible song. Unfortunately, though, rest of the album, n- not much going on. It's it's a good folk album. It very much of the Woodstock era. 
but if you love Space Oddity and you show up to the Space Oddity album expecting more, you're probably going to be disappointed. Everything changed in 1970, however, with The Man Who Sold the World. Even on the cover of this album, you can tell something is different. This isn't the same Bowie who's been trying to be famous by chasing trends for the last three years. We see Bowie in a, you know, admittedly very hippie, somewhat dated dress, but, you know, nevertheless wearing a gown, reclining on a chair, um, as if he was, you know, basically like a French courtesan's kept woman, you know, like the guy, the one who has his, uh, some, some man who's, you know, an aristocrat who's keeping a woman away from his wife, but letting her live a lavish lifestyle in some apartment apart from his home. That's kind of what Bowie looks like on the cover of this. This is where we start to get Bowie's um, gender pioneering. This is where we start to get Bowie, who is basically being himself. And I, you know, I, I can't pretend to be a Bowie biographer, but I do feel like this was the first point in his career where he was comfortable publicly coming out as someone who was bisexual. Early on in his career, not saying he was hiding it, like I said, I'm not a biographer, I don't know absolutely everything about his life, but this 1970 is the year he seems to be comfortable coming out and being a rock star who looks feminine sometimes. A rock star who other people are going to look at and, you know, drop the completely unacceptable F word at, something he definitely faced during his life. So this is the album where things really start to change both in terms of his public image and in terms of his music. The album itself, an underappreciated entry in his catalog, The Man Who Sold the World. A lot of people just know the song because Kurt Cobain covered it on MTV Unplugged, did a great job, and it's a wonderful song. The album is unfortunately underrepresented, at least uh, in terms of what people are listening to in Bowie these days. It's a really fascinating mixture of kind of the psychedelic folk hippie rock, as well as a little bit of metal. This was 1970, so heavy metal had basically just begun. Uh, you know, I think the earliest you might trace metal back to would probably be 69, if you're, you know, like talking about real metal instead of proto-metal. Um, Bowie's dabbling a little bit in that. It's some of his hardest rocking material. And this is also where he's starting to play with personas. Like these are, the songs here are tales about uh, supermen, not in the comic book sense, but in the kind of sense of like ancient supermen, you know, like Norse gods among men sort of thing. The songs are about madmen, uh, you know, and as kind of befitting of the time, madmen, you know, quote unquote crazy people, are not regarded as crazy, they're regarded as the ones who actually get what's going on. Uh, so, you know, if you're curious about this one, if you're curious beyond the title track, The Man Who Sold the World, I would say Width of a Circle is the opening track. It's an eight-minute kind of weird psychedelic opus. Uh, there's one song on it, the one kind of fun song is called Black Country Rock, and then there's another great one called, at the very end, called The Supermen. So those are the ones I would probably recommend from that. And let's maybe listen to, I don't know, actually, no, All the Mad Men is a great one. Let's let's listen to a little bit of that before I keep blabbing about uh, the next Bowie album that we'll get to. I can fly, I will scream, I will break my arm, I will do me harm. Here I stand, foot in hand, talking to my wall I'm not quite right at all Am I? 
right, that was all the Mad Men from The Man Who Sold the World. Anyways, like I was saying, so this is where Bowie kind of comes into his own. This is the first classic Bowie album that came out. Um, That being said, it's not a masterpiece. It's a bit dated. You know, it's one of those albums where I would say if someone had never listened to Bowie before, don't start with this one. 1971's Hunky Dory, however, is the first Bowie masterpiece. This is, and again, this is where we start, like, like I was saying, so 1970 is where kind of Bowie comes into his own. 1971 is where we get the first instance, or the first kind of inkling that this is an artist who is going to be constantly transforming himself. Because while The Man Who Sold the World was kind of this psychedelic hard rock, Hunky Dory is totally weirdo outsider pop. Uh, that's the album that has Changes. So if you know Changes, you know, that is a great song. Not exactly representative of the rest of what's on here, though. Uh, it does have a lot of fan-favorite songs. Life on Mars is on here. Oh, You Pretty Things is on here. Uh, the rest of it, though, it gets a lot weirder. There's a, a cute little kind of quirky song called Kooks that's written to his uh, impending child. There's a one called Andy Warhol, which has kind of weird electronic bloops in it and just sounds kind of like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Basically, it sounds like he got high out of his mind and sang a little ditty to Andy Warhol. It's barely a song, yet he keeps it on the album and somehow it works. There's another one, another tribute to one of his heroes called Song for Bob Dylan. There's Queen Bitch, which is basically proto-punk. It's just such a kick-ass rock song. And, uh, yeah, so so anyways, Hunky Dory is this very eclectic, almost, like, this, aside from what I mentioned before, the kind of hits, like Life on Mars and Changes, it stylistically, it's all over the place. Somehow, it makes itself, he manages to keep it a cohesive listen. And this is kind of the first instance, or the first inkling we get that Bowie is a major artist who is going to be creating works of art that kind of stand apart from his era. And by that, I mean that that there really are a select group of artists. There are a lot of people who create great music. Um, And there are a lot of people who create great music that nevertheless sounds very much of its time. I don't think that necessarily takes away from how good those things are, but I think it's worth giving credit where credit's due. And I think it's worth pointing out and pointing to artists like Bowie who managed to create so many... Um, songs, so many works of art that really did kind of stand as timeless. Hunky Dory falls in that category. Also, Hunky Dory is just a fascinating listen when you kind of consider that this was 1971. And for all intents and purposes, if someone, if you had never heard of David Bowie and someone put this, uh, you know, gave it to you and was like, oh yeah, this is an album, an indie pop album that came out in 2003, like you wouldn't know the difference. Like it pretty much set the template for those kind of like one oddball genius, you know, indie singer songwriter, uh, you know, just setting up a tape recorder and doing a lo-fi pop album. Uh, you know, yet this came out a good 20, 30 years before that kind of thing was in vogue. But anyways, Hunky Dory, let's listen to, oh, which one should we listen to? Let's do Life on Mars. Everyone loves Life on Mars, so let's listen to a little bit of that. Their 
All right, moving right along. After Hunky Dory, 1972 came along. Bowie keeps going with his one album a year pace. We have the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust in The Spiders from Mars. This is definitely Bowie's most famous album. This is an album that, you know, I wasn't born then, so I can't, again, this is all secondhand, but I can say that this really did seem to set off a revolution in terms of teenagers who felt like they weren't being represented in culture, in particular queer teenagers who felt they weren't being represented in culture. And I think that's something that's maybe been a little, as much has been said about Bowie since his passing, that has been a little underrepresented. And I think it's because he didn't, he wasn't outright gay. He was bisexual. And he spent the last about 25, 26 years of his life with Iman, a woman. So I think because of that, we kind of sometimes forget how important what he did was in the early 70s when he came out and said, I'm gay, even though what he pretty much meant was bisexual. But he did. He had fairly open relationships with men at the time. Um, Certainly not open in what we would consider um, a publicly open relationship these days with the internet and Instagram. But nevertheless, it was stuff that he wasn't hiding. Um, You know, it wasn't like Liberace was a gay man who went to great lengths, including, you know, suing newspapers to hide that he was gay. Bowie was not doing this. This is the first major rock star to do, the first major pop star to do that. It's hard to underestimate the cultural significance of that. And because of that, you know, even people who didn't consider themselves gay, maybe even people who didn't consider themselves curious, that kind of willingness to say, I don't care to the establishment, to say, I'm willing to come out and be myself. And if that means that some people are going to hate me and not want my music, and it means I'm going to sell less records that's fine, I'm doing it anyways. That was very inspirational. This was something that people at the time, you know, and like I said, again, I wasn't there, so I'm taking this all secondhand. But this was something that had an enormous impact on people. But let's get to the music. Ziggy Stardust, I don't want to belabor it because I'm sure everyone has heard at least some of the Ziggy Stardust album. If you haven't heard the full thing start to finish, I mean, for the love of God, turn me off and listen to it right now. It's so good. Uh, You know, this is one of those rare records that is a genre album, but totally transcends it. Glam rock is something that was more, more important to Britain than it was in America. If Bowie hadn't existed, American audiences in 2016 wouldn't give a shit about glam. But the fact is, Bowie did go glam. I mean, you know, in that, like, let's not underplay the importance. Glam rock made Bowie an international superstar, on the other hand, Bowie gave glam rock historical importance. And the reason is this album. This is one of the greatest albums ever made. Uh, you know, it opens with an absolutely heartbreak, somehow heartbreaking, yet really inspirational song called Five Years. Next up is Soul Love, a song about young love that has kind of a, a cool, like, weirdo beat Moon Age Daydream is incredible. Starman is one of his best known and best loved songs. There's a, well, let's see. I'm looking at the track list right now. Pretty much everything on here, honestly, is a classic. Hang On To Yourself is a great rocker. Ziggy Stardust has one of the greatest rock riffs in all history. Suffragette City is one of the most kick-ass songs. Also an incredible karaoke song if you can hit the notes. And then Rock and Roll Suicide is this beautiful 
contemplative swan song. Um, and, you know, of course, it's a concept album. The album tells a story, but it's unlike a lot of other concept albums. I'm thinking Pink Floyd's The Wall. This isn't overwrought. This is an album that you can listen to. You can totally ignore the storyline if you want and still have a very musically pleasant and personally meaningful experience with. Um, and I think that's the mark of a great record, especially a great concept album. You should be able to listen to it both as, you know, like something just for fun in the background with friends or while driving or whatever. And then if you want to dig into it, if you want to think about it and kind of analyze it, there should be that element too. Anyways, I don't need to belabor Ziggy Stardust. You know, millions of words have been written about this album. But let's let's listen to one of it, one of the songs, just because it is so good. Let's do uh, a little bit of Soul Love. It's a really beautiful song. After Ziggy Stardust, Bowie kept going, maybe for the, the one of the few times in his career, kind of kept doing more of the same. He did Aladdin Sane, which is another glam rock record. You know, it's ultimately most of the songs on Aladdin Sane you could imagine on Ziggy Stardust. So you could say Bowie made the same album twice in a row. For most people, that would kind of be creative death. The thing with Bowie is... He was, at this point in his career, such a consummate songwriter and performer that he gets away with it because the songs on Aladdin Sane are incredible. One thing that does set Aladdin Sane apart, however, from Ziggy is that he's getting a bit more experimental on this one. Aladdin Sane, the title track, there's a part where he's going off into almost um, kind of freeform jazz, like non-rhythmic piano chords. That being said, the rest of the album is pretty straightforward rock, incredible songs, but, you know, at this point, it, it's fair to say that it was looking like Bowie could have just become another kind of one-note artist, someone who hits success with glam rock. That's his thing. That's his t- ticket to stardom, and then he runs with it for the rest of his career. Um, that was not David Bowie, though. He was not willing to do that. So, that... <laughs> So anyways, so he did eventually reinvent himself. Unfortunately, not before he released his next album the same year, Pinups from 1973. It's an all-covers album. I don't want to be too down on it, but honestly, it's the first, like, I would say outright bad Bowie album, and it's just completely inessential. It features a lot of covers, and it's interesting to see what Bowie is covering. He's covering Pink Floyd, The Who, some more obscure groups, The Kinks, they're not one of the obscure groups, but I'm just mentioning them as well. Uh, the thing is, he's not really bringing anything new to it. And it's crazy because the man did a lot of covers that were remarkable throughout his career. He covered Bruce Springsteen's It's Hard to uh, Be a Saint in the City from Bruce Springsteen's first album. And, you know, we all know what Springsteen sounds like. We all know what Bowie sounds like. They're both rockers, but they're on pretty opposite ends of the spectrum. Somehow Bowie manages to take a Springsteen song and without radically reinventing it, make it just sound totally Bowie and out of this world. 
alien falsetto filled and it works incredibly. Um, but we did a number of other covers, did them all well. I think it's fair to say the reason pinups didn't work is just at this point in his career, he was touring constantly, he was doing a lot of drugs, and he just kind of needed a career reinvention. That didn't necessarily come on the next album, which is Diamond Dogs from 1974, but at the very least, it finds him moving forward. You could still call it glam-ish. There's definitely, you know, hints of his former persona on it, but he's moving forward. He's getting into a little bit darker, more harrowing territory. I would say Diamond Dogs is an album that if you're a Bowie fan already, if you've already got, um, you know, let's say four to five Bowie albums that you know and love, and you don't know this one, definitely check it out. If you're getting into Bowie, this is not, you know, one of the first ones you should be listening to. That being said, there's incredible stuff on it. Rebel Rebel is on it, one of the greatest rock songs ever written. It's just got one of those riffs that once you hear it can't be unheard. It's just so fun. It's one of those rock songs that kind of fills you with the energy of like perpetual youth. Like it's just one of those, the great thing about rock and roll as a whole, I would say compared to a lot of other genres, is that when it's when it's at its best, it can capture what being young and mischievous feels like. It captures what it feels like to be, you know, in your early teenage years and just you have no idea what's going to come of your life. It feels like absolutely anything could happen. You don't know what's coming up. And even if, you know, like your parents suck and school sucks, it feels like some cool things might happen at some point in your life. That's what rock and roll does best. And Bowie 100% just bottles that up on Rebel Rebel. The rest of it gets a little odder. There's a song called 1984, which, as you imagine, is similar to the book. It's one of those harrowing Big Brother-like tales. The next song is called Big Brother. So, you know, it, it can be a little dated on this album. Nevertheless, it's a good one. Let's listen to... Everyone's probably heard Rebel Rebel, so let's do a little 1984, because it is a legit great song. I'm looking for a vehicle. I'm looking for a ride. I'm looking for the treason that I knew in 65. Beware the savage show of 1984. After Diamond Dogs, we this this is where we reach the point where Bowie is finally done with glam music. He's realized that it's pretty much shaken him as far as it, as it can. And although, you know, he had kind of done a few albums within the style, it's worth pointing out that he really only stuck with the style for three years, which, creatively speaking, isn't that long. Anyways, Young Americans, 1975. Um, Bowie kind of does what, you know, you would you would say is a bad move for most rock stars either in the 70s or in today, which is that you decide you want to go from being a rock star to being an R&B singer, especially a white rock star deciding he wants to be a British white R&B singer. Um, This could be career suicide for someone. For David Bowie, something about how alien he was, even when he went soulful, he's not a good soul singer in the sense that most good soul singers are. Most good soul singers... You know, let's talk about one of the greats, the all-time greats, Otis Redding. He sings, you believe, every word he sang. 
there's absolutely no doubt that it's coming from the heart and it's just you can just feel his blood pumping with every note he hits that's not the case with David Bowie um Bowie always seemed a bit detached a bit aristocratic a bit I don't want to say he thinks he was better than people but you definitely always got the sense that David Bowie was not one of us he was apart from us, and that's what people liked about him. They wanted to use him as kind of a way of fantasizing about being cooler or being more interesting or having a better life or whatever. I mean, to a great extent, that's what we do with a lot of rock stars or artists in general. Anyways, you would think none of these things would go well with a soul album, and you wouldn't be 100% wrong. Young Americans is not a classic. It is, however, surprisingly good. This is one of those albums that a lot of Bowie fans ignore because they just figure, how the hell is this going to be good? This is Bowie singing soul music. Somehow, it actually works for an entire album. Part of the reason it works is because he's got Luther Vandross, one of the greats, singing with him. Another reason is the title track, Young Americans, just has an undeniable saxophone riff. Once you get over the fact that it sounds like SNL, um... It's just beautiful and fun and, it, you know, the backup singers. This is really an album that you got to hand it to Bowie's backup singers. He surrounded himself with a great group and for anything he might lack, you know, as an authentic soul singer, they more than make up for. This also has Fame, a song he co-wrote with John Lennon that is impossibly funky. It's just insane to think that on his first album, his first R&B album, Bowie, even if the album itself isn't perfect, that he managed to make a funk song this good. And, it, you know, it, it got him a spot on Soul Train back in the 70s. It got him a fan in George Clinton, who back then was, you know, I mean, James Brown, let's not understate his importance, but by the time this came out, George Clinton was the most important person in funk music. And... George Clinton heard fame and inspired him to write um, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker from the album Mothership Connection, which is one of the greatest funk songs of all time. That album also features a David Bowie shout out. Um, shockingly, even with an album that wasn't perfect, David Bowie managed to go R&B and have an immediate impact on the R&B scene, which is a testament to just how good he was at being a chameleon, the thing people always call him. Anyways, so Young Americans came out. Let's listen to one of those songs. Let's do, uh, you know, I've been raving about it, so let's listen to Fame. Okay, after Young Americans, this is, and I feel like I've said this like three times on the podcast already, but this is where things get very interesting for Bowie's career. He had already done, you know, basically he started out kind of like imitating the innocuous British pop of the time, moved into folk rock, moved into psychedelic, moved into glam rock, moved to soul. Station to Station is an album that combines all of those things and also points ahead to his much artier electronic albums. 
uh, Station to Station came out in 1976. The title track is a 10-minute masterpiece. It's a slow build that starts out with just some kind of echoey, spacey noises. We move into a very simple piano riff that builds up for minutes. It's I can't remember exactly, but let's say three minutes into the song before you even hear Bowie singing. Um, and he's singing in a soulful style, but he's managed to adapt his infatuation with soul to his to his vision of music. So instead of sounding like David Bowie, who wants to be a soul singer, this sounds like David Bowie, the art rock alien, who also loves soul music. And that's an important distinction, because instead of aping something that already exists, he's taking something he loves, and it's informing his palate, and he's using it to make him better at what he does best, which is be David Bowie. Anyways, Station to Station is kind of the beginning of his... It's the beginning of his Thin White Duke period. It's the beginning of his very uh, arty-leaning period. The album also features Golden Years, which was one of his biggest hits and is also one of his most normal songs. I mean, aside from the subject content, which is just kind of a nice sentimental song about what it's like when people grow older, Bowie looking ahead to his Golden Years much in the way that McCartney did on When I'm 64. Um, It's also sonically just kind of a reassuring song and you don't get that from a lot of Bowie. A lot of Bowie music does sound uh, occasionally brittle or a little bit angular. This is a warm sound, something that you don't get on a lot of Bowie music, which probably explains why it's one of his most uh, enduring hits, at least in the sense that a lot of people who don't like Bowie do like this song. The album also features TVC15, which is Another great example of Bowie taking his R&B infatuation and kind of using it to his advantage instead of just trying to imitate it. This is a funky song. It's a weird song. But again, he's not trying to write a funk song per se, but you can tell that he's taking the influence of funk and then kind of like channeling it into the art rock that comes so naturally to him. The album wraps with a cover of Wild is the Wind, which is a song that uh, Nina Simone did masterfully pre-Bowie. Um, Bowie does a wonderful job with it. It's a short album. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's only six tracks. Nevertheless, I would say that this is this is an essential album. This is the kind of Bowie record that I think if you've never heard him, maybe don't start here. But if you did start here, 
absolutely nothing wrong with that. This is a masterpiece. This is a fascinating album, and this is the kind of album that no matter how many times I've listened to it, I never get sick of it. So let's listen to a bit of Station to Station, which is a song, uh, one of the few times where he gets a little autobiographical. Um, You know, Bowie liked to kind of spin otherworldly tales with his music. In this song, though, he actually mentions a line where he's saying something to the effect of, it's not just the side effects of the cocaine, which is probably and strangely one of the most personal lyrics he's ever written because usually he didn't write about things that actually happened in his life. At this point in his life, though, he was or he was either coming off of or working on coming off of um, a very lengthy uh, love affair with cocaine. It was a substance he once claimed to have subsisted on pretty much as food for an entire year. So it's interesting that on this transitional album, we find kind of a glimpse of autobiographical Bowie. Anyways, song is Station to Station from the album of the same name. Let's listen to a little bit of it. After Station to Station is my all-time favorite David Bowie album, which is called Low. But before we get to that, we have to take a sidestep and talk about an Iggy Pop album. So David Bowie was an enormous Stooges fan. He pretty much got the Stooges back together and produced their final album, Raw Power. Well, not their final album. Final album before taking a a decades-long break, which was Raw Power. Um, When the Stooges eventually broke up, David once again swooped in and came to Iggy Pop's career rescue At the same time, as much as Bowie was rescuing Iggy Pop, he was also using Iggy Pop kind of as a a guinea pig. Um, And he even admitted this much in an interview. He worked with Iggy on an album called The Idiot that came out in 1977. But Bowie started working on this before he started working on his own low. And he was more or less using this as practice space for the kind of brittle electronic music that he would work on on what would become known as the Berlin Trilogy that included Low, Heroes, and Lodger. Anyways, The Idiot came together very quickly. Bowie wrote all the music on it with the exception of one track, and Iggy Pop wrote the lyrics. Um, the Idiot is one of my all-time favorite albums as well. I'd probably put it in my top 25. It's a weird listen. It's an icy listen. It's not an inviting record, but once you get over that... It's endlessly fascinating. Anyways, so this is the album where Bowie wasn't quite ready to say, I'm going to throw rock music, I'm going to throw radio-friendly material completely out the window, but I know that I want to work on something that's creatively grander, that's creatively more adventurous than what I've been doing in the past. But Bowie did care about the charts. That's one thing that a lot of people kind of forget or ignore when they're talking about David Bowie. For as much as he pushed boundaries and was an iconoclast, he actually cared about what was happening on the charts, actually cared about being relevant in the popular consciousness. 
So he was a little reticent to kind of throw rock music out the window and go into this, you know, bizarre period of arty experimentation. And so in that sense, he got Iggy Pop to make an album consisting of entirely David Bowie music where he could kind of test the waters and see how he felt about this. He had done the same thing before. Before he, you know, kind of abandoned folk rock and psychedelica to go for glam rock, he formed um, a band, barely a band, called Arnold Corns, where he recorded two of the Ziggy Stardust songs, basically as a way of getting in the studio and figuring out this material and deciding, is this going to work? Is this something that will sound good? Is this something that people will care about? He liked what he did with the Arnold Corns band. They released only one single and then disbanded because they were never a real band in the first place. And then he went on to re-record the stuff uh, with Ziggy and the Spiders from Mars. He's pretty much doing the exact same on the thing on The Idiot. And again, he liked what he did. The album is a masterpiece. And then he went on to kind of expand on it using his own name this time on the record with Lowe. When Lowe came out in 1977, it threw a lot of David Bowie fans for a loop. Bowie fans had already been thrown through a loop. Um, you know, when he moved away from glam and into the kind of smooth, well, smooth is the wrong word, but comparatively smooth, um, you know, weird soul music, he lost a lot of fans then. A lot of people were annoyed with him for moving away from the straightforward rock and roll they loved. Even fans who stuck with him through Young Americans and Station to Station were put off by Low. And it's not hard to figure out why. One listen to Low, it's clear that nothing like this had come out from a mainstream rock artist before. Um, it's heavily influenced by Kraftwerk, or if we're going to be pedantic about it, Kraftwerk. Um, so, you know, anyone who's kind of familiar with that Krautrock scene is going to rightly be like, hey, Bowie didn't invent this stuff. People have been doing it before. That's true. However, Bowie was an A-list pop star who suddenly kind of abandoned rock and in a lot of ways pop to produce this very electronic, heavy, ambient rock album. In fact, only the first half of it consists of real songs. The second half, although there are some vocals, is completely ambient stuff that he worked on with Brian Eno. This is an odd record, but when you get over the fact that it doesn't sound like Bowie of glam rock, that it doesn't sound like the rock and roll um, of Teenage Rebellion. It's really his most satisfying effort. And part of the reason is the production of Brian Eno. Unlike what he did with The Idiot and Iggy Pop, this is not a dissonant, brittle album. This is very arty, very out there, but it's very warm. It's inviting and somehow reassuring. The first song is kind of the rare instrumental rock song that you barely even notice there's no vocals. It doesn't need vocals. It's called Speed of Life, which is a great name for a song. And it just doesn't even need vocals to have this propulsive, exciting energy. It's a song that clips along like the big city clips along, just full of life and endless possibilities. Anyways, Low also includes one of the greatest songs of all time, which is Sound and Vision. Sound and Vision is just a perfect song. It's only three minutes, but it's not a pop single. 
In fact, it's hard to say what it is. It's electronic. It's funky. It is rock. It is poppy. It doesn't even have a proper song structure. It's not verse, chorus, verse. It clips. It moves along for m- half of its length before you even get to vocals. Yet somehow it's insanely catchy and just a song that sounds like it exists in a world all its own. I feel like I'm failing to describe how good Sound and Vision is. So to that extent, let's just listen to a little bit of it. Aside from sound and vision, the first half of Low is just full of Bowie's greatest material. Uh, Breaking Glass is under two minutes, but is this weird, angular, funk meets post-punk sort of thing. Um, Always Crashing in the Same Car is a very moody, odd, ominous song about how sometimes life just feels like you're always crashing in the same car and no matter what you do, you can't get out of that rhythm. The next song on the album is called Be My Wife. In a lot of ways, I consider that kind of a proto-heroes song. Um, this finds Bowie in his synthy electronic phase, but singing more soulfully and with more heart than we've heard in him before. That's one of the interesting things, I think, about Low and Heroes, which is the follow-up album, is even on Ziggy, when Bowie sounds like he's singing from the heart, you get the sense that he's inhabiting a character, that he's singing as the Ziggy Dust star excuse me, as the Ziggy Stardust character would sing from the heart. When you hear him singing on Low and Berlin, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like David Bowie himself singing from deep down inside. Anyways, Be My Wife is the song. Let's listen to a little bit of a, a bit of it because it is fantastic. Like I mentioned before, I feel like that song is kind of a proto-Heroes, so let's talk about Heroes. It's the next album. Uh, Released that same year, also produced by Brian Eno, also set up the same way. The first half of the album are actual songs. The second half is ambient stuff. Heroes obviously contains the song Heroes, which is one of the most romantic, beautiful pop songs ever written. It's also one of the most interesting pop songs ever written. Um... It was written about Bowie's producer and bassist, Tony Visconti. Bowie saw uh, Tony kissing his girlfriend at the time under the Berlin Wall. Uh, you know, the Berlin Wall was dividing Berlin. This entire country was ripping apart families. And something about seeing these two people still, you know, under this very imposing, horrible thing, managing to find a small moment of love and solace inspired this gorgeous song. And of course, Heroes features the inscrutable and endlessly quotable line, 
I wish we could swim like the dolphins. Dolphins can swim. Whatever that means, who knows? But somehow saying that to someone you're in love with just seems like the romantic, the most romantic thing possible. Um, anyways, Heroes, another masterpiece. I don't want to belabor it. Um, what is worth mentioning is that on the second half of Heroes, it's more ambient stuff. Unlike on Low, where the ambient stuff is, I would say, like I mentioned before, a little bit warm, a little bit inviting, even though it's out there. Very, very dark, very ominous and foreboding ambient music on Heroes. Um, One of the songs is even called Sense of Doubt, and it sounds like that. It sounds like Bowie's doubtful and suspicious of the rest of the world. And in that sense, while Heroes is absolutely essential, it's one of those albums that most people are going to find themselves listening to the first half and then maybe petering out once the second second half starts. After Heroes, Bowie finished off the so-called Berlin Trilogy with Lodger in 1979, Lodger is, in a lot of ways, I think, unfairly lumped into those previous two albums because even though it has kind of the same art rock meets funk meets electronic sound, it's more normal. It's It finds Bowie returning to more traditional song structures. Even on the quote-unquote proper songs on Heroes and Low, a lot of those feel like sketches. Everything here feels like a legit song. Um and there's no ambient stuff. They're all songs with uh, lyrics, you know, which pleased a lot of his fans who had been kind of alienated over the last couple albums. One fascinating thing about this is this does very directly find Bowie commenting on closing this chapter in his life. When he began experimenting with the more out-there art rock material with Iggy Pop on The Idiot, that album opened with the very funky, let's say, post funk through the lens of post-punk song uh, called Sister Midnight. That was the first song on The Idiot, which began Bowie's so-called Berlin era. The last song on the last album of Bowie's Berlin era is Red Money, which features the exact same music. So it's a bookend, and I would find it hard to believe that Bowie didn't very intentionally do this as a way of saying... I'm kind of closing this period out in my life. Apart from Red Money, highlights on this album include DJ, which includes a wonderful line, I am a DJ, I am what I play, which is kind of just a nice, sly, slightly snarky way of commenting on music culture where people get obsessed with their identity as if it's predicated solely on what they listen to, you know, as if I am this kind of person because I listen to this kind of music, and this other person is bad because they listen to this kind of music. Um, another highlight is Boys Keep Swinging, which is a song about kind of young masculinity that being a Bowie song about young mascul- masculinity can't help but naturally be a little homoerotic. Um, even bringing that point home further, Bowie played the song on SNL. He did this weird thing where he convinced SNL to let him perform live, but with... Um, the projection of a marionette over his body. So when you were watching it in your TV at home, you would see David Bowie's face, but a marionette's body moving around. And somehow he managed to get through the performance and right at the end had a marionette very obviously 
phallic. Uh, ba- basically, what he did was he had the marionette built with a penis, and towards the end of the song, he pulled the strings and had an erect marionette penis come out on live television, coast to coast, uh, which is probably... For someone as, I would say, as I mentioned before, calculated and aristocratic as Bowie, it's funny to think that he nevertheless couldn't resist to pull off a dick joke in front of the entire country. Um, It's childish, but it's also hilarious and incredible. Unfortunately, it's not on YouTube. It's on Vimeo somewhere. Google, Boys Keep Swinging, SNL. You will definitely find it. Skip ahead to... Uh, maybe the last minute or something. Um, and the look on his face when the marionette penis comes up is just absolutely priceless. Uh, but let's listen to a little bit of that. So boys keep swinging. Here it is. When you're a boy, you can wear a uniform. When you're a boy, other boys check you out. You get a girl. After the Lodger album, which, as I mentioned, kind of very directly and self-consciously closed off his Berlin era, Bowie recorded another absolute masterpiece, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. That was 1980. This album is kind of like what he did with the final song on Lodger, a way of saying goodbye to his past era. But unlike that album, he's not reusing music but rather touching on the different genres that he did throughout his career to create something entirely new that very much kind of set the pace for art-leaning 80s rock. Uh, Scary Monsters has a fantastic title track, probably best known for the song Fashion, which has been used in movies from Clueless to, I don't know, way too many movies to list right now. Um... And it's funny because it's kind of a a satire on fashion as much as Bowie did actually love fashion, but it's almost inevitably used with no tongue-in-cheek whenever it pops up in a movie. Um, Anyways, this album also features some of Bowie's best screaming. This album has uh, Ashes to Ashes, which is one of his most gorgeous songs. Also one of his most retrospective songs. This is one where we find him again getting a little autobiographical with the line ashes to ashes, funk to flunky, we know Major Tom's a junkie, basically pointing out that at some point in his career, he went from a funkster to someone who a lot of people thought was a has-been. Creatively, of course, he was not a has-been. He was pushing rock forward, you know, light years ahead of his time with low and heroes. Pretty much it would take 20 years before anyone would kind of catch up and catch on to what he was doing with those albums. But in terms of the press and the popular consciousness, people didn't care. The albums weren't hits. They didn't produce hits. Even Heroes, which is one of his best-loved, most-known songs, was not successful at the time. So by 1980, when he was making this album, Bowie was, for all intents and purposes, to the average listener, a flunky. He was someone who had had a hit with Space Oddity, had some funk hits, and then pretty much flopped. And Bowie's commenting on that with Ashes to Ashes, not regretfully, but just mentioning it. Um, and again, you know, it's Bowie is a sort of inscrutable figure 
did he mean to write this song to say that he was sad that he had let go of chart success? Is he just recounting it wistfully, the days that he used to make hit music? It's hard to say what Bowie meant when he was looking back on his career and calling himself a flunky and a junkie on a song like Ashes to Ashes. But without skipping ahead too fast, I think it's fair to say that though that line was an indication that he did want to get back to being someone who made chart-making hits because the next album was a very obvious play for radio play. But before we get to that, let's listen to... I've talked at length about Ashes to Ashes. If you've never heard it, please look it up. But let's listen to a little bit of It's No Game, number one, which is the first song on the album. And it's just a bizarre, half-atonal screaming song, but it's fantastic. It's basically one of those things that you listen to and you're like, this is so ahead of its time that it wouldn't be another 30 years till someone would be doing the same thing. So here it is, It's No Game. All right, moving on from Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. At this point in his career, Bowie moved on to Let's Dance. He rang up Nile Rodgers, who was famous for um, fronting the band Chic. He would later go on to produce Madonna's Like a Virgin album. Um, you know, Chic, of course, had a number of enormous disco hits with uh, Le, you know, Le Freak is the the song, and that, of course, is the, the freak out song that is, you know, indelibly associated with disco. Um, Let's Dance is interesting for two significant reasons. One, it's Bowie making a very obvious play for chart success. As I mentioned before, it seemed in 1980 he was aware that he had kind of become, um, at least in the public eye, a has-been in terms of a pop star. And he seemed to want to rectify this on Let's Dance. So he met up with someone who made very obvious pop music even though you know disco was out of vogue by 1983 david had a great ear he could tell that nile rogers was more than just a disco guy he was a man who knew great bass grooves who knew dance music and could give bowie the hits that he wanted um the other reason it's so fascinating is what i was just saying is that um nile rogers was best known for disco um disco was a maligned genre there was you know there was disco sucks bumper stickers across the nation even as popular as it been as disco was at its height the backlash was equally ubiquitous um a lot of people have i think correctly pointed out that there's probably a race element in that i think because disco was even if not done primarily well even if it wasn't done entirely by African-American artists. Disco was a a music format that was started by African-American artists. It was based on R&B and funk. And in that sense, a lot of people, the kind of rock purists who kind of, you know, ran the music press at the time, thought it was lesser. It wasn't as important as a rock album because it was based in funk, because it was disco. Anyways, so Bowie, someone who was a major rock star ringing up someone who was, 
one of the big figures in this very maligned uh, genre that a lot of people thought was a fad and even worse was like basically the death of music. That's significant. That's ballsy. That being said, that's kind of the only ballsy thing about this album. Let's Dance is a fantastic album, but it definitely falls into that category of this is an artist who is putting creative forward motion on hold in order that they might come up with some hit singles. And he did, and there's nothing wrong with that. Modern Love is this wonderful new wavy synth pop anthem. It's such a good dance song. It's it's a song that references My Fair Lady. Like it's as far as you know, 80s dance hits go, Modern Love is very unique. That being said, this is also where we start to see David Bowie's career as someone who is pushing music forward come to a close. But fortunately for us, it's a fantastic album. This gave us Modern Love. This gave us the hit version of China Girl. Um, the aforementioned album, The Idiot, actually had the first version of China Girl. I would find that the superior version. It's a little more brittle. It's a little more harrowing. The sound of this song mirrors the lyrics. The lyrics of China Girl are basically fear of colonialism destroying the rest of the world. So it makes more sense that the song sounds a little industrial and gross. Um, it makes a little less sense that Bowie did it as a you know, a frothy pop song. That being said, it's still a great song. And then, of course, Let's Dance, which is just one of those infectious, undeniable 80s dance pop songs. It gave Bowie his second number one hit. He first hit number one with Fame in 1975. This was his second and last number one hit. And the album also has Cat People putting out fire, which was used to great effect in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. So this is kind of where we're going to start closing down. Uh, Bowie had albums after that with varying degrees of success. His next one tonight is a total cash-in album. It's clear that he was not interested creatively and he just wanted to put out product. Never Let Me Down came out in 1987. It's an all right album. After that, Bowie formed a kind of grungy rock band called Tin Machine. They released two albums. Would not recommend checking either of those out unless you're a completist. He kind of returned to form a little bit with Black Tie White Noise in 1993. Again, one of those albums worth checking out if you're absolutely in love with Bowie. If you're not to that point, if you're not familiar with all of his 70s stuff, don't bother. After that came an album called Outside, one of my least favorite Bowie albums. He kind of rebounded a little bit with Earthling, which features a wonderful song called I'm Afraid of Americans, which is one of his absolute best videos, and features Trent Reznor as the scary American uh, chasing him down and trying to murder him. And after that was an album called Ours, again, not one of his finest. After that is Heathen, 2002, I would say kind of a bit of a creative renaissance for him. It's he sounds more he sounds like he actually cares about his music for the first time in a long time on this album. Uh he followed it up very quickly with an album called Reality in 2003. Inessential Bowie, if it's something you stumble across worth listening to but not brilliant. He was quiet for the next 10 years, had a surprising comeback with the album called The Next Day. The Next Day is good. No doubt about that. But it's one of those albums that's good because you're like, hey, this is a new Bowie album. I never thought I would get a new Bowie album. 
it's not a Bowie album that when you think, I want to listen to David Bowie, you're going to put on that album. But the incredible thing about Black Star, the album that Bowie just released um, last week, is that it is one of those albums. Black Star, I think, will go down as one of his top... It'll go down in the top half of his album, discography. Since his passing, I've wanted to listen to Bowie a lot. And the thing that really surprised me was instead of just focusing on the old stuff that I've listened to and I know by heart, I wanted to listen to the new album. That almost never happens when a rock star who is, you know, years, decades past their heyday releases a new album. A lot of times you're like, oh, that was good. Good for them. They're still at it. They've still got some spunk left in them. Black Star is more than just a good Latter-day album. It's a brilliant album. Bowie sounded reinvigorated in a way we hadn't heard, I would say, maybe since Heathen. Honestly, maybe since the 80s. He employed a jazz backing band, which was a brilliant move. He was inspired by Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Something about the jazz band's experimental playing, I think, makes him seem more interested in the material than he sounded in a long time when he's backed by a rock band. Aside from that, the songs are just more interesting. He's returning to his really out there, um, you know, inventive song construction. And because of that, he sounds more invested in the material. According to Tony Visconti, who we've mentioned before and produced Bowie for years and played with him, Bowie thought he had more time on Earth. He thought he was going to be able to record another Black Star. Not that he was going to call it that necessarily, but another album like that. It's a tragedy that we'll never know what could have been. But you can live life thinking of things that way. At the very least, we can and should be thankful that Bowie went out on such a high note, on such a creatively fascinating album. And at the end of the day, we have to be thankful that Bowie existed. He's really one of those few artists. There are a lot of rockers out there and a lot of great rock musicians There are, however, a lot of rock bands I would say I really like that if they had not existed, music wouldn't be all that different, where I would say my life wouldn't be all that different. There are a class of people, however, who that's certainly not true of, and David Bowie is one of them. David Bowie changed the face of music forever, not just rock music, but a variety of genres. David Bowie changed fashion forever. He changed culture He brought conversation about, you know, being queer or at least curious about those things into the popular consciousness, honestly, probably two decades before anyone else would have. It wasn't until the 90s that that thing, that talking about being gay became a normal thing. And even then, in the 90s, I remember, it was regarded with a lot of suspicion and derision. The fact that 20 years before that, Bowie was forcing that conversation into the public consciousness is amazing, and it's something we should all be thankful for. But what we should most be thankful for is the fact that he existed, that he existed and he not always but frequently did exactly what his artistic muse wanted and that he pushed himself to be the best he could be. And that's the thing that we should really take away from his life, that even though you can't always be the most 
I don't know. You can't always do exactly what you want. Bowie did things to make money. Bowie did product endorsements. Bowie took bad film roles. Bowie made some singles just to hit the top of the charts. But in addition to that, in addition to doing, you know, all the silly things that we occasionally have to do just to get by with our lives and just to get a meal, Bowie did take time to experiment, to think outside of the box and do things and talk about things that no one else did. And at the end of the day, that's what we should be thankful for. Okay. I hope this was okay. I feel kind of weird just doing a must-hear music podcast by myself, sitting alone in a room and talking. Probably will be a while before I do another one like that. Let's hope it's a long time before someone of the caliber of Bowie dies. Um, But yeah, if you made it through the whole thing, I really appreciate you listening. And uh, I don't know, if you have thoughts or, you know, favorite Bowie songs, please tweet them at me. Um, Yeah. All right. We'll, We'll be back next week. With the normal episode where other people will be here to prevent me from just trailing off and uh, getting misty-eyed while thinking about David Bowie. But seriously, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. There's a star waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow out. 